You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to uh, Job chapter 40 and 41. For those who are visiting, we've been looking through the book of Job. We're getting towards the end. Um, just before New Year, in fact, the last Sunday of the month, we'll look at Job 42, which is the ending, and that means the New Year. Uh, We're going to, in the mornings, uh, look at 2 Corinthians, and Sinclair, in the evenings, is going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis. So, uh, we look forward to both those. But, as we Come around Christmas, a single will continue to be looking at John's Gospel in the evening uh, and next Sunday morning, and obviously we'll be looking at Christmas. But I want to finish uh, off Job, and we're here, Job chapters 40 and 41, where God continues his answer to Job. And to be honest, when you're reading this, initially, it does seem a little bit of a disappointment. For those who don't know the story... Job has suffered enormously. He has lost his family. He has lost his health. He has lost his home. He has lost his wealth. He has lost his status in society. He has spent several chapters in this epic poem dialoguing with his friends about God and about why he has suffered and so on. And he's wanted God to speak to him, and now God speaks to him. And in effect, what God says, look at the hippopotamus. It, it, it doesn't come in as one of the great explanations of, of evil and suffering. And yet, as we look at this, I hope you'll see that it, in actual fact, it's not disappointing at all. Let's read the first bit. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Job's come full circle. He asks in chapter 9, verse 14, how can I answer God? In chapter 13 and verse 22, he says, I will answer God. And in chapter 31 and verse 37, he says, I will stand like a prince before God. And now he says, I can't say anything. I'm going to shut up. I've gone too far. I didn't know what I was saying. And he is silent. There's a time to be silent. The time has not yet come for the hidden things to be made plain. 
The truth is that much of our life will not be explained until eternity. And if you're the kind of person who's wanting an answer for everything, you want everything sorted out, everything fixed, that's not real. That's not reality. There are questions and hurts and pains that in this life will be answered. And there are many that in this life will not be answered. As most of you know, I spend a great deal of my time debating and discussing with non-Christians. And one of the most insane and yet one of the most common things that is said is, unless God explains himself to me, I'm not going to believe. Now you have to back off and realize the arrogance of that statement. And you also have to back off and realize the stupidity of that statement. Job is coming as a believer to God And God is basically saying, I don't have to explain myself to you. Would you discredit my justice, says God? God actually says to Job what human beings want for ourselves. He says, you run the world. Let's see you do it. You deck yourself with glory and splendor. You bring justice in this world. And again, the arrogance of modern human beings is the same as the arrogance of older human beings, we can run the world without God. We don't need him. Our our need for God is completely gone. We don't need God in our lives. And if God ever wants to punish us, all he has to do is say, okay, run it yourself. See what happens. Two men were walking home one night and the one said to the other, if only I was on the throne of the universe for 10 minutes. And his friend wisely replied, if you were on the throne for 10 minutes, I wouldn't wish to live on the earth for 10 seconds. Because we can't. We have this arrogance that says we we would do a better job. What we're being taught in the whole of Job is this, that God is so great that even the evil things can be turned for good. Can you do that? Very powerful nations very powerful people. If you had a lot of power, could you do things? We're praying for America, great nation. When President Obama came to power, it was on the promise that he was going to make a better world, and people believed that. Incredibly, people believe that, because it never happens. It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to make a better world. And now I was just reading a couple articles this week We're talking about how people who are progressives and liberals are so disappointed that the world has not been made a better place. We think we can remove evil with violence. So Osama bin Laden, an evil person, does a lot of evil things, kill him. Has that removed the problem? No, it hasn't removed the problem. And it won't remove the problem. One man says this, men are eager to use force to combat evil And in their impatience, they wish that God would do so. If we were like God, we would be like, if you you know the Lord of the Rings, we would be like people who'd been given the power of the ring and we wouldn't be able to use it properly. We would turn into another Satan. Satan was incredibly powerful. It's only God who can destroy creatively, if you like. Only God can transmute evil into good. Did you feel even slightly uncomfortable singing there about God breaking people's power, God destroying his enemies, God squashing their heads? It's incredibly barbaric, isn't it? Well, actually, no, it's not. 
You pray for God to destroy your enemies because the only alternative to that is you're going to get, you are going to try and do it yourself or you're going to get someone else to do it. It's really interesting, all the, you know, Nelson Mandela dies and of course everyone, everyone, well not everyone, but most world leaders want to be seen as, yes, he's kind of a, a modern saint. Now Mandela had many good points and had many, many bad points. But I think uh, for me, what really, really impressed me about him is what he won the Nobel Peace Prize for, both him and de Klerk. Because South, South Africa was a mess. And what had gone on in South Africa was awful and apartheid was awful. And Mandela coming out of prison, if he'd had the attitude of most people, then I think South Africa would have been, not just me that thinks this, but many people think this, South Africa would have been a bloodbath. But de Klerk and Mandela, both of them, from their Christian perspective, determined to do what they could to ensure that the transition from apartheid to democracy would not result in bloodshed and vengeance. And I think one of the lessons that we can learn from that is just how much Christianity is needed in our cultures and in our society. Only God can transmute evil into good. To govern the universe, you would have to be as majestic as God. And I want to ask you if you're a Christian, and right now, your heart's kind of full of bitterness and cynicism and despair because you see a situation where you'd say, if only I was in charge, or if only God were like me, then it would be different. I want to challenge you to back off from that. I want to challenge you to don't play that game if I were God. I want you to accept that God is God and that God is good and that God is love and that actually you're not and that God does work all things for the good of those who love him. That's where your faith really, really comes in. And I want to challenge you, if you're not a Christian, to think about how you deal with the difficulties and the evils that exist in your life. And that's where we go on here, where we're told to look at the behemoth. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins. What power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The hills bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? What's the the behemoth? It could be that this is a, a collection of some kind of fantasy monster, some kind of fantasy picture. This is a poem, and it's maybe describing some mythical creature from the past. Or it could be, as many people think, that it's a real creature and it's the hippopotamus, um, the greatest of the beasts, it says. First among the works of God, 
referring to Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, where God made all the birds of the air and made all the beasts of the field and made all the creatures of the deep. Behemoth just means great creature. It could be a hippo, a crocodile, a water buffalo, or some mythical creature. But it's just referring here to saying, here is a creature who is incredibly powerful that you cannot control, but I can. And then he goes on to this in chapter 41. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fishhook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength, and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Fire bands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Sling stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a point of ointment, like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a glistening wake. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. That's an incredible description, an incredible piece of poetry. And it is intended to teach us, I think, something very, very profound. The Leviathan, the fiercest of the sea creatures, could be a crocodile. Mentioned in Psalm 74, we sang Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. In the mythology of that time, Leviathan is like, a, like the behemoth, was a, a symbol of chaos, There was a Canaanite myth of Lotan, the seven-headed monster of the deep. It's like 
In Scotland, we have the Loch Ness Monster, and I think pretty well every culture has a monster story. Well, this is the monster. The Leviathan has no practical usefulness. He can't be caught, can't be tamed, can't be domesticated, can't be used in human service. He's not for food. He's incredibly fierce. Verses 10 and 11 says, if, you, if the Leviathan makes you turn away, what will happen when you meet God? Talks of the Leviathan as fire-breathing like a dragon, as the king over all the animals. But what interests me most is that Leviathan, particularly in Isaiah 27, is associated with evil and this idea of dread. There is a monster you know, a, a, a very small child, you do get very, very scared about the sense of monsters and so on. Um, I remember walking up to our house when I lived in the north of Scotland as a teenage boy and going through this kind of phase where I knew everything, you know, and understood everything and everything was really, was fine. And um, I got out of this, the bus and started walking up this lane with It had trees on either side, and it was incredibly dark. No light pollution at all. Just heading about a mile up the road to my home. And I remember thinking, oh, this is really scary. And then not thinking about, but just hearing all different kinds of noises. And thinking of spirits and monsters and ghosts and so on. And and, um, animals and everything else. And I remember just saying, the logical part of me saying, don't be stupid, there's no such thing like that. But that's all very well being logical when you're sitting in your home and it's light and nice and warm. But it was really quite scary walking up there. And there's a sense in, in that, that within every one of us, there is a fear. There is a sense of darkness. There is a sense of evil. And there is a sense of something overwhelming. Leviathan, I think, in Isaiah 27 anyway, stands for some kind of supernatural power. I think the combination of here and there, Isaiah 27, embody the the idea of the inexplicable and the frightening in God's world, a power that is beyond human control. Here be monsters. It's like um, in The Lord of the Rings when Gandalf has to meet his monster. How scared he was to do that. And this passage is telling us that Leviathan, whether it is a crocodile, whether it is supernatural power, whether it is a creature of mythology being used to embody this idea of evil, that all of this is under the control of God. We do have monsters, if you like, in our culture, human evil and human darkness. And we think we can get rid of it. I think of of just one of the daftest, daftest statements I've ever, ever heard. That there's an empire of good and there's an empire of evil. And you're on the good empire and you're on the evil. And let's destroy the evil. No human being is able to destroy evil. That's the challenge that God makes to Job. If you can do it, do it. But we can't. We just create more But here, Job is being told, God knows. God is in control. Abraham Kuyper said that there's not an inch of this universe of which Jesus Christ does not say, it is mine. God is saying to Job, even Leviathan 
He's my pet. Even Leviathan, I control. Romans 11.36 says this, From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. I'm just reading just now a, a book by Augustine uh, against Manichaeanism. I always pronounce that wrong for those of you who are scholars and know what it is. But it's just an old, old heresy that's still around. And it's the idea that there's good and there's evil, that there's a good God and there's a bad God or a bad devil or whatever, and they're equal and there's a battle that goes on. Star Wars of whatever kind. And it's a false teaching because there is good and there is evil, but God is over all and God is in control of all. Jesus on the cross Disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. One man suggests that Behemoth here might be death, and Leviathan might be the devil, the personification of evil. I don't know. But I know this. Psalm 74 verse 12 says, You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. Psalm 104 verse 26 says, The sea vast and spacious, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. And Revelation 12.9 says, The great dragon, that ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he is defeated by Jesus Christ. Now, there's an immediate problem. And it's the problem that, out of which Manichaeism came. And it's the problem which people will instantly identify. If God created all, and if there is Leviathan, if there is evil, if there is, then does that mean that God created evil. Are there equal powers of good and evil? Well, it doesn't mean that, and I haven't time to go into that in any great detail, but if you seriously are really bothered about that, please do ask me, because I spent a lot of time working on this and thinking about it, and spent a couple hours when we had the Solas Connect um, teaching about it and so on. Uh, You can ask me, or you can just go and read Augustine, because that's who uh, has helped me a lot enormously with that question. But the summary of what the Bible says is this. God did create the devil, but not as a devil, as a good and powerful spirit. But God allowed the devil to become the great serpent, the dragon. And God will destroy the devil. The Bible teaches that the forces of evil are under the control of God. They too are part of the created order. Chapter 41 is really saying, can you deal with evil? Can you fish for Leviathan? Can you control that? No, but I can. And I think it's important for us to grasp and to hold on to that. Now, there may be lots and lots of other questions. There may be questions that you would want to, oh, why why have evil in the first place? And then there's all kinds of philosophical answers that can be given. How can you have light without darkness? How can you have freedom of choice without having anything to choose? And so on. But the practical question that Job has to face is, all this terrible stuff that's happened to you, all this evil, can you deal with it? And the answer from Job, Job knows this. No, I can't. I can't deal with this. And For us, whatever the deeper questions, the philosophical questions that we have, can you deal with the darkness? Can you deal with the depression? Can you deal with the evil that's in the world, that's in your life? 
And I don't think you can. And I think our world is, ironically, those who turn away from God claiming that we're following a fantasy are the ones who end up living in a fantasy world because they either end up denying the existence of evil altogether or they end up thinking, I can control this. I can deal with this. Just give me the power. Just give me the resources. Give me the money. Give me the military. I can deal with this. I am fundamentally good, and I can sort all this out, or we can, but we can't. The Christian comes with a very different perspective. The Christian comes recognizing that the key fact of our life is that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The whole of this book, the conclusion of, in terms of suffering, is just simply this. God is a God of wisdom. That's what nature shows. God is a God of power. He can control even the monsters. The key factor in all of this is that God is God, that He is just and He is good. You have a framework in which you need to think. And if you are a kind of an, an atheist, what you're going to think is your framework is that you are the one who can determine what is true, you are the one who can determine what is right, and within that framework, you work everything out. But it's not real. If you are a Christian who accepts what the Bible says, you have a framework which says that God is good and God is just, and God is love, and everything else fits within that framework, even though we don't understand why particular things may happen. Or let me put this another way. When God makes himself known, it is not always as the God of the scholars or the philosophers. We live in a culture which, as Leslie Newbegin points out, is obsessed with the scientific worldview, which sees everything in terms of questions that need answering and problems that need solving. Peter Atkins of Oxford University is, is quite explicit in saying, there is no question which science cannot answer. Now, I can think of a hundred questions that science cannot answer and will not answer and will never be able to answer. There are many, many questions that science cannot answer. Science is wonderful, but it's limited to what it can answer. The trouble is sometimes Christians come along and what we do is we try and give just as neat packaged answers to everything. And what the book of Job tells you is that there's no neat packaging that you can take to all of this. We have a need within ourselves to want everything to be secure and manageable. But the fact is some things are untidy. Sometimes there are logical gaps and untidy edges, and as a result, sometimes a struggling faith, because your faith must not be in your ability to understand everything and work everything out. Your faith is ultimately in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Job can rest secure, not in knowing everything, not in knowing why he suffered, but in knowing the God who does know everything and the God who controls both the ostrich and the monsters. And so, Job is able to offer himself again to God. Romans 12 says this, verse 1, I, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, what the book of Job does, it does, in a way, it does answer the big questions because it sets them in a completely different light and gives us a different perspective. And it doesn't matter. Some of this is really, really heavy, and some of you say, whoa, I don't want to... You know, I'm just thinking about my Sunday lunch. I don't want to be thinking about Leviathan and monsters and evil and how we cope with all this within the world. And I'm saying to you, you have to. You, you don't have an option in that because you have to live within this world and you have to have an understanding of how you're going to cope with all the evil and difficulty within this world. And what Job sets before us are, are pictures, if you like, alternative pictures that we choose which one we're going to live within or going to act by. The one is just to say that the world is chaos, that there is no order, there is ultimately no goodness, no truth, no justice, that ultimately perhaps everything's just an illusion, that we're kidding ourselves with absolutely everything. If uh, you followed the philosophy of people like Jean-Paul Sartre and others, that's where you'd end up with. It would just, life would just be meaningless and pointless. I, I heard someone this morning say, why, why are we seeking for a meaning from life? Surely it's just enough that it's meaningless. No, it's not enough. It's not enough. There has to be a meaning and a purpose. Another is to suggest the kind of dualistic view that there's God and he's a good guy and then there's the devil and he's a bad guy and we got to choose. And that... Um, you know, there's this battle going on and we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to work out. And I know maybe the devil will win sometimes. Or there's a much more biblical view, which is, I think, just a fantastic vision and a fantastic understanding. And it says that you and I are screwed up people who live in a very twisted and bent universe where there is so much darkness and so much evil and so much pain and so much sorrow. But that's not because God has been defeated and it's not because the devil is in control and it's not because the forces of darkness have overwhelmed. Over all of that, from a Christian perspective, is a sovereign God who is almighty and all-powerful and who even out of the chaos even out of the existence of Leviathan, is able to bring what is good and true and beautiful and who will one day destroy everything that is evil in hell and preserve and beautify everything that is good in heaven. And so it will be that all our suffering and all our pain and all our sorrow, it will, <coughs> it will somehow end up making sense This life is, if you like, God's weaving his pattern, allowing us to be free, allowing us to be morally responsible, allowing us to love, and allowing us to come and to know him. So I find myself, and I'll finish with this, I find myself increasingly faced with darkness and questions and despair, demons, 
All these kinds of things. And I find myself just simply, for me, with only one choice. And that choice is straightforward. Lord, I can't handle this. I can't understand this. But I trust you absolutely. This is what you did. You died on the cross for me. You created the whole world. You have given us your word. I I trust you. Absolutely. I trust you. Totally. Job, in Job 42, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time, says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And I just simply ask, who's, who do you trust? Whose side are you on? Are you going to make yourself God? Are you going to go Leviathan's way? Or are you going to trust in God who is good and who is love and who is gracious and who is merciful and who somehow sees all your pain, knows all your sorrow, sees all your sin, and yet heals and forgives and binds up and is ultimately bringing out of it for you something that is so extraordinarily beautiful that the Bible says your eye cannot see and your mind cannot conceive the things that God has in store for those who love him. So instead of being overwhelmed by dread and fear or hiding away in panic, jumping behind the metaphorical couch, you can stand up and you can be bold and you can be strong and you can say, my hand is in the hand of God. My life is in the hand of God. And that is a wonderful place to be, to be with the light in the darkness. May God bless his word to us. I'm going to ask Richard if he'll come and pray for us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.